Blood Bond by Nick Bastin. Copyright 2019, Nick Bastin. Chapter 58 The Switch Archie, Jamie and Breached had been watching the castle from the tree line for nearly an hour, and with the gloaming upon them, the light was now failing fast. They were on the far side of the castle, away from where Duncan and Ian were hopefully conducting their pantomime, and were dressed head to toe in black. As if on cue, they saw the sentry on the parapet of the wall become distracted by something happening on the other side of the ward, and he disappeared from view. They swiftly crossed the open ground from the trees to the bottom of the castle wall. Archie was carrying a carbon fibre pole that was about ten foot long and as thick as his forearm. He swiftly unscrewed one end and untelescoped and locked two further sections together. He now had a thirty-foot flexible pole that was stronger than steel. Barely pausing for a second, Breege gripped the end of the pole at right angles to the wall while Jamie and Archie held the far end. As they pushed, she walked up the wall with her feet until she was up and over the top of the 20-foot-high parapet. As she disappeared over the top, Archie and Jamie retracted the pole and disappeared back into the cover of the pines to watch and wait. The whole operation had taken less than a minute. Breeze dropped down into the courtyard of the fountain, rolling softly as she landed. Springing to her feet, she hugged the shadows as she made for a doorway in the far corner. When she got to the smooth steel door, she prayed that the skeleton code would still open it. She punched the numbers into the keypad and breathed a sigh of relief at the soft click and the green light. She opened the door as little as possible and squeezed through the gap into the darkness beyond. Once the door was closed behind her, she felt safe to switch on the lights that illuminated the rough, cast, concrete steps leading down into the sub-basement. Following Ian's directions, she ran down a long corridor to the third room on the left. Here she was confronted by a wall of olive green electrical cabinets covered in jewel-like lights of different colours and sizes. They all seemed remarkably similar, and for a moment she wished that the rat was with her. She couldn't afford to make a mistake. She pulled a piece of paper from her breast pocket and held it up as she studied the bank of cabinets. Counting in from the right wall, she found the third cabinet, ran her finger down the winking lights to a large black butt labelled on, off, next to a brightly burning red light. She depressed it and the telltale red light went out and the green one next to it lit up. Thrusting the paper back in her pocket, she pulled out a small pair of pliers which she used to grip and unscrew the red plastic cover of the light from the panel. Next, she unscrewed the neighbouring green plastic cover and swapped them over so that the green was where the red had been and vice versa. To any but the most informed observer, nothing appeared to have changed, just that the red light had moved an inch to the right. In reality... Power had now been restored to the clan's mobile tower network, which was once again beaming signal up the glens and along the shore. Now all they had to do was open the gateway, but that was Fiona's job. Her heart was pounding as she pulled the door to the cellar closed and walked back up the corridor and climbed the stairs. She extinguished the lights and opened the door into the courtyard a crack. She could just hear the muffled chattering of guards as they watched the duelists, shouting their encouragement at the pair. She closed the door again and shrugged the small drawstring bag off her back. From it she took out an apron and cap, identical to the ones worn by the kitchen staff in the castle. Having put them on, she calmly walked out of the door with her head held high, walking down the passageway into the outer ward. 
She fussed over a few of the picnic tables, collecting glasses and stacking plates and rearranging dirty cups, until she was certain no one was interested in her. Then she slipped through the entrance gate, skirting round the back of the crowd of onlookers to the duel, and walked away up the hill to the track, shedding the apron cap as soon as she reached the sanctuary of the trees. There she was joined by Archie and Jamie, and they looked down to the shore and the duel that still seemed to be in full flow. Bridge did worry that Ian and Duncan were overdoing it. As any seasoned blade fighter knows, duels were almost always short, sharp and definitive. The florid sweeps and elegant riposts that the pair were performing were almost comical. Their audience didn't seem to mind too much, though, and the bellowed insults that the Rat and Duncan were exchanging seemed to compensate for the lack of venom in the strokes. Then, as if to a predetermined signal, they both clashed their swords together and closed into a tight melee. After several seconds of wrestling to and fro, they sprang apart, each nursing a small cut to their upper arm. The tension of the crowd evaporated as their hopes for blood were dashed by these meagre trickles. Even Alan Stewart, who'd been goading the pair to stoke their anger, lost interest. As the crowd scattered back to their posts, Duncan and Ian gathered their possessions and, studiously ignoring each other, walked the path back into the trees away from the castle. Chapter 59 Connected. Ping, 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 ping. Bzz, bzz, bzz. Wee, woo, wee, woo, wee, woo. The table in front of them suddenly erupted in a cacophony of buzzing, chirps and ringing bells as long-queued messages poured out of the ether into their handsets. Charlie and Nin dived for their respective phones, gazing mesmerised at the screen full of messages, as if for the first time. There it was, as bright as day in the top corner. Anturadu with a little emoji of a black tower. They were back online. Although in the great scheme of things, this was a very modest triumph, there was no denying the effect it had on their morale. The simple act of reconnection seemed to transform their prospects. Now they could at least communicate, access money, connect with friends and family and figure out a way to fight back. Nin and Charlie were alternately laughing and agonising over the information that was flooding their screens as they caught up on the news. For half an hour, no one spoke as the updates were digested. Gillespie, who was in any case unaffected by the data embargo, exchanged a few emails with Eamon and Kate on the farm, not because they really needed his input, but as much to make him feel as though he was doing something useful. Finally, the screens were lowered and an assessment could be made of their situation. Rubbing his eyes, Gillespie said, So, what's the plan? Charlie looked at him as if he was an idiot. We don't have one. That's the point, you great bellend. That's why we're sat here like a bunch of numpties. Those greeny brown eyes flashed fire at him. Feeling somewhat ashamed at Charlie's overall reaction, Gillespie concentrated as best he could. He felt beholden to propose something, anything, without thinking too deeply, he said. It's obvious, isn't it? We need to find and rescue Kirsty. I mean, I don't know enough about the Republic and your ways to even get started with all the politics and the law and how you reclaim Dundarav and kick Lament out. We can't take on all that other stuff in one go. There are too few of us. But we can try and do something about our friend. And besides, if not us, then who? We now know that Kirsty wasn't captured by the Campbells, and Bridge has it on good authority that she was taken by Lamont to Castle Ascog. That makes a lot of sense, since they must also have taken control of the gaming operation, and to do that they must have got the admin codes from her. The idea of her being stuck in that dreadful place is too awful. Nin started to nod. Aye, maybe our Irish McNachton is right. 
fuck the castle and the chief and all that bullshit. We need to try and save Kirsty. I don't imagine they're going to keep her alive for very long now that they have what they want from her. Okay, so that's where we start, Charlie. But how are we going to get in there to find her? You can't exactly stroll up to Castle Ascog and ask to be let in. Besides, that place has an evil reputation. I don't think I've ever heard of anyone attempting such a thing. It's a place people run from, not to. Which is exactly why they won't be expecting anyone to try, interjected Nin, his newfound focus burgeoning his innate confidence. And now that I'm thinking about it, I've just the person to help us. Who? said Charlie and Gillespie simultaneously. Why, Alistair MacGregor, of course, Nin beamed, delighted at his stroke of inspiration. Gillespie looked at Charlie and then at Nin, slack-jawed. Chapter 60 the summons. Alistair MacGregor paused, straining his ears for the slightest sound. Nothing. He was not so foolish to believe that that meant he'd shaken his tail, just that they were being cautious, as well they might. He was annoyed that he'd sent Sal ahead, leaving him exposed in this way, but he was not unduly concerned. He'd already led them a merry dance through the hills, and given that he was approaching Rannoch more proper, They'd better be on their guard. This was Grigorach country, and none knew it better than he. He was now skirting the upper slopes of Skogarv, with Rannoch Forest stretching out below him. If he could cut around the bouldered slopes of Garaville Moor ahead, he could catch his pursuers in the rear as they made their way across the tight-sided valley which led down to the forest and ultimately out onto the moor. He duly increased his gait to his favourite loping run. After years in the hills, he could keep this pace up for many hours, long after most pursuers had given up exhausted. Sure-footedly, he sprang from rock to rock, deliberately avoiding any mud that might leave a revealing footprint. The air was cold, and he pulled it deep into his lungs, enjoying its burn. He was in his element and relished these moments, and here on the edge of Rannoch, the home of the Grigorach, it would take the devil himself to cow him. He picked his way through the boulders, leaping the gaps and scrabbling over their tops, and had soon completed the circuit of Garaville Moor. Pulling out a small pair of binoculars, he hunkered down to watch as his pursuit made their way down the shoulder of the ridge and into the quarry below. There were five of them, black watch judging by the dark green and blue government tartan he could just make out on their uniforms. Not that he was surprised. He thought they might have given up by now, but clearly not. They had stopped just past where his tracks had ended, where he had doubled back. They were clearly discussing what to do next, and he was keen to see if they would stick together or separate. After some debate, they elected to follow the quarry down towards the forest, assuming that he must have gone that way to get to the safety of the moor. They were also sticking together, and that made his task that much harder. He pressed his cheek to the cold, damp rock. This boulder had lessons to share. Alistair MacGregor's pale eyes suddenly snapped into focus. He now shadowed his pursuers. The hunters had become the hunted. For his plan to work, he had to get to them before they left the quarry. It was also important that they didn't see him. He flitted from boulder to boulder as he climbed the quarry slopes high above them as they continued to meander looking for his tracks. He knew that he was running out of time. They were almost at the end of the quarry now. He had to slow them down. 
Bending down, he found a palm-sized rock, and having picked a spot on the far side of the narrow valley, he threw the stone as hard as he could. The stone soared and then clattered down into a mound of smaller stones and gravel, scattering them and sending the impact echoing around. The five froze, turning to face the sound, hands on their weapons as they scanned the rocky mountainside. While he had them staring in the wrong direction, Alistair found what he was looking for, a collection of boulders at the top of the scree run that lined the slopes of the quarry. He rapidly appraised the boulders, and having found the best candidate, he placed a thick black disc under its edge before retreating a safe distance. This movement attracted the attention of one of the Black Watch, who shouted at the others and pointed towards Alistair on the hill far above them. At that instant, the landmine detonated, shattering the boulder and dissolving the hillside above, which started to move, slowly at first, but swiftly gaining terrible momentum as it rumbled down the slope. The figure scattered, trying to escape as the tide of rock engulfed the quarry floor. Alistair saw two of the Blackwatch disappear under a cloud of dust and stone, while a third was struck by a rock the size of a watermelon that tumbled and bounced in a lazy but inexorable arc towards its target, downing him with a sickening thud. Two remained, but they were dazed by the dust and the shock of the impact. Having tracked the avalanche down the hill, Alistair did not hesitate and leapt on the first with sword drawn. There was not much of a contest and having parried his opponent's rather feeble attempt at a cut, Alistair ducked under his upstretched sword arm and howled the man's hamstrings, leaving him to collapse with a scream, while he turned to face the fifth and final pursuer. The man's face was covered in dust and sweat. He was blinking furiously, trying to clear his gummy and clogged eyes. He thrust his pistol at Alistair and the crack of gunfire filled the quarry, reverberating from stone to stone as he chased Alistair's shadowy blur. But his aim was unsurprisingly poor, and Alistair was moving fast, dodging from left to right as he zigged towards him. From ten feet, Alistair unleashed a whip crack of a left hand, the smooth stone flying straight and true to bounce off his opponent's forehead, dropping him to his knees like a stunned ox. After a second's pause, the figure fell forward, flat on his face, out cold. Alistair picked up the pistol, tucking it into his webbing, and turned to survey the scene. He could do nothing for the two of the watch that had disappeared completely under the rocks, while the man with a crushed chest was still breathing and would live, but was clearly in a lot of pain. The man he'd howled was lying on his back, yelling. Alistair went up to him and, and traced a thin red line across the bottom of his neck with his sword point to attract his attention. Now, five against one's not very friendly odds, is it? The man stared back, saying nothing. Alistair continued... Maybe I should cut your throat and let you bleed out on these cold, wet stones. No? Well, it's lucky for you I'm feeling like one merciful motherfucker today. Turning away from the groaning figure, Alistair gathered some useful bits of kit and ammunition before setting off at a jog down the mouth of the quarry and into the trees beyond. It was as he was about to enter the trees that he got the message, his phone vibrating in his sporran. He frowned as he read it and paused for a few minutes while he decided how to reply. His mind made up, he tapped out a response, and then tucked the phone away. Turning south, he headed away from the safety of the moor. He knew he had a hard step ahead of him if he was going to make the rendezvous in time. But these hills were his backyard, and having checked his watch again, he disappeared into the landscape at his loping run. Chapter 61. Follow the Rat.
Fiona pushed herself back from the desk with a smile. It was possibly the first smile that had crossed her lips since she'd heard the news of her husband's death only a few short weeks ago. It was as if, at least for a few moments, she'd shrugged off the dead weight of grief that she'd felt smothering her. She did not expect the feeling to last, but it did show her that there was hope. The world was a little more colourful, as if the spectrum of her vision had widened from the drab greys and duns to at least include blues and yellows. She heard a laugh, and it took almost a minute for her to realise it had been her own. She exchanged a high five with Al, the next door terminal operator, who'd been helping her navigate the Campbell systems, sharing the moment of triumph when Anturadu had come back online. She imagined all the pings and alerts around the glens as the clan reconnected to their digital life. All the social posts and photos, the gossip and memes, as well as the serious stuff. Al had been a great help and she'd been impressed with the power and subtlety of the Campbell operation. But despite its scale and reach, ultimately it was no more effective than the unit that Kirsty had developed at Dundarav, of which Fiona had formed a part. Once the clan mobile network had been restored, it had been relatively straightforward to hack a patch to route access to their network through the Campbell's internet gateway. Now the clan could communicate and access the outside world. She'd never imagined that being isolated could have been so debilitating. It was as if the bonds of time and history were being dissolved. If it had gone on indefinitely, who could say what would have happened to the clan? As it was, it was only a step on the road, by no means their final destination. For a start, this was just their portal and communications hub. It did not include any of their gaming operations, which had always been kept completely separate, and which was still beyond their reach. The brief celebration over, she went and got herself another cup of coffee to join the mounting tower of cups on the desk. Light was falling but she had no intention of stopping while she could still keep her eyes open. She turned to Al to pick his brains on what to do next. I want to try and hack Castle Ascog. I need to see if they're holding my friend Kirsty. At the same time, we can see if they're holding McCallan Moore. Have you guys ever managed to gain access? No, unfortunately not. We've tried occasionally, but their system is pretty secure. We never found a chink to wriggle through. Okay, but do we think they may have left any code or links that might give us a clue or way in from when they shut down Anturadu? Al scratched his scraggy beard while he thought. I doubt it. They didn't seem to really touch your intranet. Just destroyed your ability to access it. On the other hand, they've now integrated the gaming site into their systems. So if we can get into that, maybe we can hack backwards up into their network. I can't imagine that we'll find a connection from here but I'll run a scan just in case we've missed something. Fiona glanced at her watch. It was just after five. She needed to jump on a conference call at six with Bridget, Ian and the rest of the crew, and she'd hoped to have some more good news to share. She went back to her terminal and called up the Clan Lament site. She tried playing around with her HTTP and FTP entry ports, but got flamed every time. She was getting nowhere and hoped that Al was having more luck with his diagnostic test. The sigh from across the desk told her the answer before he could even speak the words. Checking her watch again, she picked up the computer's headset and dialed into the call, which was already populated by Nin, Charlie and Gillespie at Kindrocket, and Ian the Rat, Archie and Jamie and Breached. After graciously accepting their thanks for her work on activating the gateway, and hearing all about Breached's daring break-in at Dundarav, the mood became darker when the fate of Kirsty was discussed. Nin outlined the plan that he'd made to rendezvous with Alistair McGregor, and to get his help with the search of Castle Ascog. Ian and Jamie were highly sceptical. 
Getting the help of a Grigorak with anything seemed absurd, let alone teaming up with one of the most feared Grigorak of them all to break into one of the Republic's most terrifying locations. Certain of a double-cross or just a no-show, they poured cold water on his plans. This left the atmosphere on the call even blacker than before, if that was possible. To try and maintain a bit of positive momentum, Fiona then went through the various steps that she'd gone through to try and hack the Lament systems to no avail. She bemoaned the fact they were unable to connect to their gaming programmes, as that might have offered a route in. It was then that Gillespie spoke up. Well, there is one thing which probably doesn't mean anything, and almost certainly won't help, but I thought I should mention it. All ears swung in Gillespie's direction. Yes, what is it? said Fiona. For God's sake, out with it. Nin, remember when we were on top of Ben Buya, and Kirsty sent me a message with the admin password? Aye, I do, said Nin, and I also know that they don't work now. Aye, right enough, said Gillespie. But you also left another strange message which I didn't understand at the time. In fact, I still don't. But there must be a reason why she sent it to me. Maybe one of you knows the answer. I'm just going to forward it to you now. It's an old black and white photo of a shinty team, and the accompanying message says, Follow the rat to the back door. It must mean something, otherwise she wouldn't have sent it to me. But what it is, I do not know. There was a general murmur down the line as each opened the message and looked at the attachment. It was Ian the Rat that spoke first. That's a picture of the Glenshira Shinty team when they won the Argyle Cup back in 1979. Look, there's old Cal McNutt and Fraser Henderson in the front row. Christ, look at Fraser's teeth. For a moment, the older members of the group, essentially Archie and Ian, were lost in a ball-by-ball reenactment of the last game of the 1979 season, when Lockie McNachton had scored the unlikely winning goal with five seconds to spare, when his wild strike rebounded off the head of a MacArthur defender into the goal, winning the game and hospitalising his opponent at the same time. Yes, yes, OK, all very interesting, but how does that help us solve the riddle? What did Kirsty mean? Is there a message hidden in there that we aren't seeing? And what does she mean by the rat? Ian's the only rat we know, and he's not even in the photo, said Fiona, exasperated. Yes, I am. What? Where? came the reply from several lips simultaneously. There, in the far left corner. I remember being there, but I've never seen this photo before. All eyes turned to the far left corner where a young boy of ten or so, with a pointed face and bad haircut, was stood, arms raised in triumph, toothy grin splashed across his face. It was a tiny figure in the background, so it wasn't surprising they hadn't seen it before. Okay, so there you are. What's the significance of it? Vienna asked. God knows. I was just celebrating that we were the champions. I don't think it has any significance, said the rat. There was silence while everyone stared at the picture on their various devices. Wait a minute, said Gillespie. I'm looking at this on a phone, and the picture's really small, even if I blow it up. I can't really see anything. Who's on a proper screen? Fiona, can you zoom right in? Uh, give me a moment. If I just stretch it out... There. Fuck me. Clever cow. How did she do that? What? Came an exasperated chorus down the line. Well, if you can blow up the image of our friend Ian, you'll see that he has his arms raised and index fingers pointing up, presumably to show that the wonderful Glenn Shearer Shinty team is number one. But if you look above where his fingers are pointing, you can also see the old double diamond advertising hoarding that used to be in Castle Place and in Inverary where this photo was taken. 
Aye, said Nin. I can see it now you mention it. Okay, shit for brains. What are his fingers pointing at? It's just a web address on the bottom of the poster. What's so special about that? Either Charlie has sucked your brain out of your cock, or you really are as thick as two short planks. The internet hadn't even been invented in 1979, you great twat, Fiona said, exasperated. All the other cool participants murmured their acknowledgement of this, as if it was obvious, and how plain it was, now they saw it. Nin, who was feeling slightly foolish, said nothing. He was quietly trying to imagine a time before the internet had existed, and failing. So that address and the numbers that follow, they're a code to access the site, Gillespie asked what everyone else was thinking. That is what we're going to find out in about 20 seconds. Fiona's fingers tapped away in the background. Okay, so yes, this appears to be a back door into the gaming site. Kirsty must have created it to make sure she could always get in. This was just a clever way of storing the codes in plain sight, where she could always access it, but anyone stumbling across that image would never have seen them buried in the background. Now I want to be careful so I don't trip any alarms and alert Lament. Let me look around and see if I can find a way out of this back up the control chain into their systems. I can't do it while I'm on the phone, so we'll have to reconvene. Give me a couple of hours. For the next two hours, Fiona worked furiously, trying to feel her way through the Clan Lament network. Once she'd left the familiar territory of the old McNuchton gaming system, she was into unknown territory and had to be careful. She imagined that it was a bit like being blind. You had to feel your way down unfamiliar network paths and junctions, keeping an eye out for the security code tiptoeing around protocol traps and being careful to leave no trace. The back door that Kirsty had left only gave her the administrator rights on the old McNuchton code. As soon as she hacked up into the Lament network, she was exposed. To gain access to their full system, she needed to escalate her access privileges without ringing the alarm bells. After poking around for a few minutes, she was surprised to find that the Lament site had been written in C++, which meant that there were no inbuilt system blocks to a buffer overflow hack. She was not naive enough to believe that it meant the site wasn't protected, just that she could at least try and initiate discrete stack-based exploitation to see if she could secure additional system privileges. She'd already spotted the canary that had been left by the most obvious data stack. She carefully tiptoed around it to find a less obvious and unprotected target. Her eyes burned into the screen, line after line of white code scrolling up and away into the surrounding black ether. After 45 minutes of mounting tension, she suddenly got the results she wanted. Access granted. She breathed a sigh of relief. She had had to upgrade an old profile from the McNuchton system and had been worried that the cloaking she used wouldn't fool the Lament security. It had worked, at least for the time being. Now she had to look for where the information on prisoners was kept. She imagined that any system area explicitly dealing with prisoners was likely to have high security and be closely monitored too. Instead, she decided to look for a softer target. Scratching her head to think of alternatives, she tried the castle kitchen. Everyone has to eat, after all. There she was able to put up a schedule of catering requirements for the week, including in what was described as the secure area. Although there were no names next to the various cells, just numbers, she could toggle back through the previous days to see when the cells were occupied. By cross-referencing with a calendar, she could match the first entries against two of the numbers to the disappearance dates of both Kirsty and McCallum Moore. One of the numbers, which she identified as most probably Kirsty, had been moved from one location to another a few days after her appearance on the register. But the other, which she presumed was McCallan Moore, had been in the same unit since his arrival. 
Although she could not be 100% sure without a much deeper penetration, Fiona was as confident as she could be that these were their missing targets. Kirsty was currently being held on sub-basement 4 slash 3 and McCallum Moore on sub-basement 6 slash 2. Racking her brain for anything else she could usefully do while she was inside, she suddenly had a brainwave and without further ado pulled back from the catering rotor and headed off to another area of the network to see if she could dig out the information she needed. Chapter 62, Dune. Gillespie couldn't believe that they were really going to leave the peace and comfort of Kindrocket for the danger and uncertainty of the plan that had just been outlined. Having been nearly drowned and frozen, not to mention shot at and blown up during his journey over the Grampians, he was in no hurry to leave. When he had protested, Charlie and Nin had looked at him with condescending understanding. They suggested this was not his fight, and that he'd be very welcome to stay safe in Kindrocket until the situation had become clearer, or even to try and make his way home. Charlie pointed out that the border was close. With a bit of luck, he'd be able to cross and make his way to Aberdeen or Glasgow, and then fly back to Belfast. They waved off his concerns over his lack of passport or ID, saying that once he was over the border, he wouldn't need them. He felt irritated at how quickly they wanted to let him off the hook, almost as if they expected him to run away back to his real life at the earliest opportunity. Maybe he'd been hanging around Gales for too long already, but his Clive felt affronted. He also had a sense of loyalty to Kirsty. He knew that if he left now, that would be it. He could never come back. And so he made up his mind to throw in his lot with the rescue team to do what little he could. He busied himself shadowing Charlie and Inn as they got ready. This time they would be better prepared and at least have some proper winter clothing. Charlie had the added distraction of his mother fussing him and his father making suggestions that were neither needed nor wanted. By necessity, Charlie had been very cagey about where they were off to and he certainly hadn't told his parents the truth. The idea that their son might be disappearing to fraternise with the Republic's most wanted man and then attempt to free a hostage from the lair of the lamentation, a feat that no one in their right mind would even contemplate, was not one that any parent could countenance. Finally they were ready, and having piled all their gear in the cat, they waved off Torquil and Derviguila before heading south out of Braemar. Soon the bright lights of Perth were illuminating the sky through the darkening gloaming. The border road turned west at Dunblane, skirting the city at a distance and leaving it to sit secure behind prodigious barriers of razor wire and ditches. They headed west and Nin took the next exit ramp while gritting his teeth and wringing the steering wheel in his hands. Dune. Even the sound of it rang like a bell, like a forger's hammer on an anvil, like your ears after a clap of thunder. It struck a note of warning. For more than half a millennia, Dune had been the centre of the Gale's weapons industry. Founded on their insatiable desire for ever more sophisticated armaments, as well as meeting the needs of militaries from around the world. Nin explained that Dune was run by the Atelier, the arms producers, each of which was specialised in certain areas. The best known was the Atelier of Thomas Caddell and Sons, which had been founded in 1646. They had never been at the commodity end of the market, they were artists who made the best for the best, and at a price. The cat swept into town, passing low houses of stone, some white, some red, some unhulled and bare schist. Nin pulled in by the Mercat Cross and parked. Across the road was the steep, corby-stepped gable of the town's leading hotel, its stone walls towering over them. Above its studded oak double doors swung a sign made of a crossed pair of old-fashioned steel pistols. This was the infamous sign of the silver pistol, 
the location of their proposed rendezvous with the outlaw, Alistair McGregor. Chapter 63, The Rendezvous The Wild Geese had been a popular restaurant with the more nefarious clientele of Dune for centuries, and over the next few hours, Gillespie and Charlie gradually sagged on their bar stools as the row of empty glasses in front of them proliferated. Plates of food came and went as the hour hand of the clock relentlessly marched around the dial. Gillespie was beginning to feel nervous that Alistair McGregor might not show after all, blood bond or no. Even Nin was beginning to wonder if such things were still accorded due respect in the modern age. In any event, McGregor was hardly the most reliable counterparty. It was as Charlie ordered their third bottle of claret that the door opened and a dark figure entered. The maitre d' bustled over, and with a slightly fawning manner relieved him of his coat and bag, ushering him down the few stairs into the bar area. The shadows seemed to lengthen as the man descended the steps, as if the illumination cast by the dim bulbs could never quite keep up with him. It was only when he was practically by their side that they could be sure that Alistair McGregor had kept his word. McGregor's pale eyes parted the vaporous broom that hazed and shrouded his features. Their evident delight at seeing Gillespie, Nin and Charlie was almost matched by their surprise at his arrival. He grabbed them in a two-armed bear hug while calling for whiskey from the barman. Now that he was close, Gillespie could see that he was in quite a state. His kilt and stockings were sodden and covered in mud his whole body was drenched in a mixture of sweat and blood and bog water. He had clearly come straight off the hill, and his journey had not been an easy one. Nin got him a chair so that he could sit down before he fell down. Nin poured him a glass of claret. Here's to you, McGregor. I had my doubts, but you're a true man of your word. Aye, well, it wasn't the easiest journey, that I can say. You didn't leave me much time to get here, so I've had to run those Balwida hills through night and day. They don't get any smaller with time, I can assure you. Having ordered some more food, they waited for Alistair to regain his composure and for the whiskey, wine and mound of carbohydrates to work their magic so they could start to plan their assault on Castle Ascog. Blood Bond was written and recorded by Nick Bastian. The Reel of the Red Banner was written and performed by Ewan Henderson. This has been a Book of the Black Tower production.